Our second reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 2, beginning with, chapter, with verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. Moving now to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they served, they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This too is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amid coronavirus alerts and presidential primaries and simply the busyness of life, you, like most of our secular culture, may have missed the fact that the season of Lent has begun. But there are reminders waiting for you in the sanctuary. There are our purple stoles. There are our seasonal banners. There's the first of our Lenten devotionals tucked into your bulletin. There's the call to worship that we read. And then there's the morning's two Bible passages, two stories readily seen as being about temptation. But what if there's more to them than that? And for that matter, what if there's more to Lent than that. Now certainly the gospel text that Lisa read must be about temptation. Jesus spends 40 days in solitary self-denial, fasting to the point that, as Matthew puts it, he was famished. And then the one whom the writer calls the tempter and whom Jesus names Satan, this one puts Jesus to the test of three temptations. His first temptation is tricky because it seems so helpful and wholesome, turned stone into bread. And it wouldn't be selfish or gluttonous because Jesus could then go feed all the other hungry people. Why would he not do this? Well, because back when Jesus' ancestors were in the wilderness for 40 years, one way God transformed Pharaoh's slaves into God's people was by teaching them that God's goodness comes along with the feeding of God's provisions. So Jesus reaches through the haze of his hunger to find the book of Deuteronomy. One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The second temptation seems almost silly, but it's probably the subtlest. Unlike the useful practicality of turning stones into bread, this one sounds like a stunt. For Jesus to hurl himself off the pinnacle of the temple would be to dare God into engineering some spectacular intervention. 
But if Jesus proves God's existence by summoning God's angels, that bypasses the need for faith. And faith matters in human life. So instead, Jesus again quotes Deuteronomy, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And then the third temptation, this is the one that really gets me. Think about it. All the kingdoms of the world, state legislatures and national governments, local businesses and international corporations, families and schools, individuals and entire industries, wouldn't it be great if all human systems were ruled by Jesus? But that comes with the condition that even the Son of God would be worshiping something other than God. As much as I, in my sinful weakness, can't help but try to come up with some angle that lets me be okay with that, it's a non-starter for Jesus, who returns yet again to Deuteronomy. Worship the Lord your God and serve only God. And with that, he sends his devilish tempter slinking away. What a great story. No wonder some version of it is in each of the synoptic gospels. And no wonder we associate it with Lent. The story's 40 days in the wilderness is the basis for Lent's 40 days. Jesus' fasting is the basis for Lent's austerity. And Jesus facing down the temptations of sin is the basis for Lent's emphasis on our need to repent of sin. Lent is the season when we are reminded that Jesus shares our experience of temptation, even though we don't share his perfect resistance to temptation. So why would we look for more in that story or in today's other story about that oh-so-tempting apple? Well, while it is, yes, tempting to think that Lent is simply about temptation, there may be a more profound, more important for our faith challenge if Lent is actually an opportunity to learn how we are to live in God's world because we are not God. Before we can find that in this morning's Genesis story, we have to clear away the stuff that's accumulated around this text, including all the stuff that each of us brought with us when we walked in here. As renowned Hebrew Bible scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it, no text in Genesis, or likely in the entire Bible, has been more used, interpreted, and misunderstood than this text. And then he identifies five major misconceptions we need to get over. First, Brueggemann writes, it has been assumed that this is a decisive text for the Bible and that it states the premise for all that follows. In fact, this is an exceedingly marginal text. No clear subsequent reference to it is made in the entire Old Testament. Contrast that to the genuinely defining stories of Moses and the Exodus or Abraham and Sarah. Brueggemann's second issue. The text is commonly treated as the account of the fall. Nothing could be more remote from the narrative itself. In fact, the Hebrew Bible doesn't assume that we are hopelessly fallen. The assumption is that people are capable of obeying God. Brueggemann's third objection is that this text is treated as though it were an explanation of how evil came into the world. 
In fact, there is no hint that the serpent is the embodiment of evil. His fourth concern, similarly, the narrative is taken as an account of the origin of death in the world. No one dies in this text. This is not a reflection on death, but on anxiety-ridden life. And finally, Brueggemann notes that interpreters have been prone to focus this narrative around questions of sex, but to find in this any focus on sex or any linkage between sex and sin is not faithful to the narrative. Yes, the Apostle Paul will reference this story, but it is not foundational to Paul's beliefs. And what later church leaders do with it, especially regarding women, is simply not true to the text. Okay, so that's what the story doesn't say. What does it say? It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So, church, we have a purpose, a God-given purpose, something that God had in mind when God first scooped up earth and formed an earthling into whom God breathed the breath of life. In the beginning, God gives humankind a purpose, to till and to keep. These verbs connote engagement, care, preservation of God's good creation. That is our purpose. God also gives permission and gives plenty. You may freely eat of every tree in the garden. God supplies our needs. We will not go hungry in God's garden. God gives us plenty and God gives us permission. Purpose, permission, and plenty. All of it pure gift from God. But what do we obsess over? The other element in the story, the parameters. Yes, in addition to purpose, permission, and plenty, God also provides parameters, boundaries that are not to be transgressed. Exasperatingly, God does not tell us why. God's world, God's rules. God is not required to explain God's decision about the one tree that's off limits amidst all that humankind is given. Which is not to say that God is being capricious. No, it's just that we're back to that idea of how we live in God's world, knowing that, as a colleague likes to say, there is a God and we're not it. People don't get to grasp everything. Only God does that. God gives humankind the gift of living in God's world, caring for God's creation, and flourishing according to God's terms. But then, that crafty serpent. This talking reptile has also been excessively interpreted, but modern scholars generally see it simply as a plot device just a means of inserting into the story the sly suggestion that the straightforward obedience assumed by God's generosity is somehow optional. So instead of God's ways, other ways are highlighted. And thus, the famous moment arrives. Listen again to the text. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was 
to be desired to make one wise. I want some of that tree. It's delicious. It's beautiful. It would make me wise. Yes, please. But God has told the man, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Still, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And at this point, I just have to stop and point out that when the desirability of that tree is seen and the woman reaches out to touch, to take, to taste, where is the man? Standing right beside her. It does not take Walter Brueggemann for us to see that the woman has gotten a raw deal. Well, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. After discounting God's permission and the God-given plenty it afforded, after disregarding God's parameters when they chafed, the earthlings now neglect their God-given purpose. Their focus becomes themselves instead of God and God's task for them. Maybe that could be our Lenten focus. Not just temptation, but the fuller journey of taking seriously the purpose, the permission and plenty, and the parameters that God gives us. Our purpose has to do with tilling and keeping, which is to say caring for God's creation. At minimum, it's loving your neighbor. The permission and the plenty have to do with the gratitude for the abundance of our life, which frees us to share, confident that God intends there to be enough for all. And the parameters? Mm. This is more than respecting boundaries, such as those transgressed by, for just one example, Harvey Weinstein, though those are included. This is knowing that we live in God's world and we are not God. Jesus, of all people, Jesus demonstrates this when the tempter tempts him. In resisting temptation, Jesus is clear on his God-given purpose. He is clear on God-given permission and plenty, and he is clear on God-given parameters. He chooses the ways of God instead of any other way. As we prepare to gather at his table on this first Sunday of Lent, may we reflect on the parameters God gives us, those we are tempted to transgress. But may we also give thanks for the blessing of our God-given purpose and the plenty and permission that enable us to pursue it faithfully. Amen.